We're turning back to the Word of God today, and we're turning this time to 1 Corinthians and the chapter 13. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and we'll read just verse 7. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow in a further word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we seek Thy face. We need Thy help. We need Thy direction. But Lord, we always need the power of Thy Holy Spirit to hear the Word and to heed the Word and to see it applied to our life on a daily and a consistent basis. And so may we not merely be hearers of the Word today or sermon tasters or anything of that order. May we, Lord, rather be saying, what will be said from God's Word today, applied to my heart by the Holy Spirit that will benefit me in the way that I live. Will help me in my testimony to reach out to others who are all around perishing, perishing by the score, perishing by the hundreds, perishing by the thousands, people in the very street in which we live. And many people dying, and we don't even know about it. Lord, come, we pray, and reach out through us that we might be a strong signal to a world that hasn't picked up a spiritual signal for an awful long time. In Jesus' name, to thy glory, for our good, we pray. Amen. In D.L. Moody's Anecdotes, this challenge is written down, and it's leaning upon an incident that happened in D.L. Moody's own life. In fact, the person being spoken about is actually none other than him. And he said, show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. And then he says, in Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended Sunday school that I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, that little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, although it meant a long, tiresome walk each way. A friend asked him why he went so far and told him, you know, there are plenty of others just as good nearer your home. They may be as good for others, but not for me, was his reply. Why not? She asked. Because they love a fellow over there, he replied. Then he concludes, if only we could make the world believe that we love them, there would be fewer empty churches, and a smaller proportion of our population who never darken a church door, let love replace duty in our church relations, and the world will soon be evangelized. And what was true of Moody back then? Holds good still today. If only, I repeat his final paragraph, if only we could make the world believe that we loved them, 
there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller proportion of our population who never darken a church door. Let love replace duty in our church relations. And the world will soon be evangelized. Now, I can't skip away from this or dodge it or pretend it doesn't happen in Scripture that my heart is appealed to to show more love. Because it's important that we love and the New Testament keeps hammering away at this particular subject. For example, as Christians, we are exhorted, Colossians 3 and 14, to put on love in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1, to follow after love. In Philippians 1 and verse 9, we are told, abound in love, Hebrews 13 and 1, Continue in love, 1 Thessalonians 3 and 12. We are to increase in love. And then when I get to 1 Peter, the chapter 4 and the verse 8, be fervent in love. Philippians 2 and 2, be consistent in love. Hebrews 10 and the verse 24, we are to provoke each other to love. And then in 2 Corinthians 8 and 8, we are to be sincere in love. So the message is coming at us from all sections of our New Testament. And it's clear and unmistakable. We cannot say we're confused by what we're being told here. And it is the pinnacle of completeness as far as a Christian is concerned. The healthy, the happy, the positive, the glowing, the useful Christian who leaves a mark upon society around him is always and only ever going to be the one who loves. But how does this love function? How do we see it? When we love like Christ, it will be very plain. And we have looked in the studies that we've done here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, first of all, the primacy of love in verse 1 through to the verse 3. Then we have concentrated much of our attention on the profile of love, and we've worked our way down through all of the features so far from verse 7 through, from verse 4 through to the verse 7. And we have noted along the way, love is patient because charity suffereth long. It is kind. It is not jealous, not envying. It is not pride because it's not going out there vaunting up itself. It's not conceited. It's not graceless or rude. Is that not the hallmark of our society in general today? Is it just me or Am I in a little locked-up bubble of imagination here when I think that even when you're out driving the car, there are so many more people who are just graceless, downright rude from what it used to be? Society, you see, is coarsening. And that coarsening will affect every avenue of its activities. Love is not selfish. Seeketh not her own is not angry, not easily provoked, doesn't think evil, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. And that's where we got to last Lord's Day morning. We learned the word beareth means to cover. And so what we have here is, and the picture that Paul is painting is simply this, if we love each other enough, then we will stand with each other and we will stand up for each other in every single circumstance. You see that true love 
It's eager to protect a person from harm and ridicule and from embarrassment. True love is all out to guard a person's reputation. True love refuses to engage in gossip. And even when you know the gossip is true, the story is correct in much of its detail, love tries to help the person who has evidently fallen and to help them with the least possible hurt and harm sustained by them. What does Solomon say? Proverbs 17, the verse 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. And many people need to log into that particular line and to put it into practice, of course. Some profitable questions right here are these. When you hear gossip about somebody else, do you rise to that person's defense if only just to say, now we don't know the whole story because you'll discover in life, as I have done, that there are always two sides to any story you hear. And you'd be best not falling hook, line, and sinker for the first person who comes to you with the first side. We don't know the whole story. And sometimes we never will. Or do we rather lean in closer and say, give me more of the juicy details there. I haven't got enough to masticate on. I'd love to hear more of the grimy detail When somebody has a great need or a great fall, do we abandon ship? Or do we get on board and try to ride out the storm, helping that person? Are we willing to protect others? Or does our desire for protection only extend to ourselves? And as long as I'm all right, Jack, then it doesn't matter what trouble anybody else is finding themselves in. This morning, we're trying to do a sweep over the last three qualities of love that appears in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7. And we have, as we noted last Lord's Day morning, we have here a quartet rather than a trio. And it began with what we looked at last Lord's Day, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And I think the words that we used back then were these terms are associated one with the other. They go together. And as they go, they're ascending. And I think we'll see how that happens today. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So love believes all things here. What it does is it believes the best in somebody else. Instead of being suspicious and eager to denounce some offender, love wants to believe the best. Instead of saying, Well, he or she probably got what they deserved, or he's so far gone now, there's no hope for him. He'll never change. He'll never be anything other than what he is right now. Instead of that, love believes the best. It sees the weakness, of course it does, and it puts a cloak of silence around it, then believes the best. It doesn't go through life cynical and suspicious, suspecting everybody and everything, it doesn't automatically jump to the conclusion that when somebody has done wrong, you know what that does? All that demonstrates is that person was rotten to the core right from the off. 
love always believes the best. Now that applies to an unbelieving child. And you'll see this, as I have done over the years, when parents of a child who drifts away from the Lord. And what do they do? They recognize, of course they do, the sin and the failure and the faults of the child, but that doesn't stop them throwing a mantle of love over him or her. And they believe with all their hearts and they pray to God daily, regularly, that he or she will come back to the Lord. Do you know why they believe that? Because they love him, they love her, and love has to believe that. Now, if they responded by saying, he or she is gone forever, they'll never come back to the Lord. They're a failed project. Give up on them. That would reveal a lack of love. Why? Because love does not let go like that. Another illustration. You can see many people who are constantly believing the best, not just about an unbelieving child, but an unbelieving spouse. You and I know of many, I would guess, Christian women, men as well, who've been married to unbelieving husbands, or therefore wives, for many years, and yet they're always saying, he'll come to Christ. Someday, that tells me she loves him and vice versa when it goes the other way. It's also illustrated by our Lord Jesus in the way that he believed the best about his sinful disciples. Those ones, even the ones best known in the New Testament, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, if we can call them that, to themselves, they knew they were nothing special. In fact, they realized they were sinful. Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And between incredible highs that Peter, no doubt, rose to, he knew what it was to fall into failure too. James and John had a problem with pride. In fact, on one occasion, they had the gall to ask their mother to ask Jesus if he would reserve for them the chief seats in his kingdom. They wanted to be top-notched. Mark 10, the verse 37. We don't know that much about the rest of the disciples, but we know they, like us, they were sinners too. And our Lord could have, could you imagine him doing this, scratching his head and saying, Father, I'm not sure this plan is going to work out too well. I've assigned 12 failures as disciples, and the thought of going back to heaven and leaving everything to them concerns me. But he didn't say that. He knew the sins and the shortcomings of those disciples better than anybody else. And yet he believed the best about every single one of them. And he said they can do it. And he gave them the task. And he sent them into the world. And he brought his Spirit to bear upon their lives. And they did succeed. Believe about those people, believe much about them, and you'll make the best out of them. Our Lord trusted them to fulfill His plan, believed the best about them, and on that basis, they carried it out. And if you or I are going to make a mistake about somebody's character, let's do ourselves and them a a favor and err on the side of love and charity. Make a mistake, and if you make a mistake, do it on this level, that you trusted, that you believed in them too much, 
Now, if somebody doesn't fulfill the level of trust that you've invested in them, once in a while they drop from that, well, you can cope with that. It's better to wear on the side of love. And you'll find most of the time when you put this kind of positive influence upon people that you're believing in them, they will give you the best they have. Believing the best. But also... Love believes all things. The flip side of the coin is there are those who believe the worst. And they're not guided by this principle of love. Look at the church that Paul here was dealing with in Corinth. Look no further than that. And in the church in Corinth, people are cynical. They're anxious to believe the worst about people. They assume that everybody around us doesn't tell the truth. Didn't Job find that? With his cartel of friends, they were super quick to accuse. We know what your problem is, Job, it's sin. Standing square and large in front of our eyes. You've done a lot of evil things, Job. There's no other way to explain what's happening to you. It's time to face up to that, Job. That's why it can only be the reason. That's why all of these terrible things and tragedies are happening in your life. And Job kept listening and he kept thinking. And he kept trying to work it out along the lines that they were directing him. And these were unjust charges coming in one upon the other. But he knew his own heart in all of this. And he realized, my friends are wrong. And finally, in Job 21 and verse 27, he declares, Behold, I know your thoughts and the devices which ye wrongfully imagine against me. In other words, I've heard enough from you, Phyllis. I've got all your negativity. All you're doing is thinking bad thoughts about me, and you're not slow in articulating every bad thought that you have. You don't love me. And they didn't, because had they loved him, they would have said, well, our friend Job, we know he's a good man. God acknowledges that right at the beginning of the book. Maybe he has made a mistake here and there and somewhere else. Maybe he's sinned, but he's a good man. There's another explanation behind this whole series of trials rather than only his sin. But that's not the way they thought. We have the Pharisees. And they're swarming around Jesus and continually believing and wanting to believe only the worst. Matthew 9 details their reaction when Jesus forgave the sin and healed the sickness of a man who had been afflicted with paralysis for decades. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee, our Lord declared in verse 2. Salvation, it was granted first. Then physical healing was added. Verse 7, however, as soon as Christ announced the forgiveness of this man's sins, in verse 3 we read, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Why did those scribes and Pharisees allege that? Because they were cynical, and they were suspicious, and they were jealous too. They had this predetermination, Jesus Christ is evil. And while it seems incredible to us that they were suggesting to forgive sin was actually an evil, not a good act, they were driven by this predisposition. He is evil. Everything that he does just has to be evil. There's no 
good in him, even on another occasion, by Beelzebub, they alleged. He's casting out devils. But isn't verse 4 of Matthew chapter 9 so interesting because our Lord just turns the tables completely? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? The evil is not with me, your Lord is alleging here, but it's with you. Your hearts are evil, and your evil attitude towards me proves you don't love me. And if you'd loved me, you would have thought the best, not the worst about me. Now, that's her challenge. These Pharisees didn't take any correction in that statement, because even though they couldn't find any fault in him at all, they kept on looking for them. Well, sometimes that happens in life. Joan was a doctor, a very good doctor, who was well regarded in her profession. She was also very committed to her church and to helping the community around that church. She wanted to make a difference, and partly that was the reason why she had become a doctor in the first place. But there was an opportunity that came her way to go to Zimbabwe and Africa and do medical work in some rural villages. And so she felt, I can improve the life of these people. I will go. She had a good friend, a female, another doctor by the name of Terry. Terry and Joan decided they were going to take advantage of this opportunity and both would go to Africa. So Joan and Terry took a leave of absence from the hospital, went out to Zimbabwe, began to help people. They set broken bones. They gave out medicines that were vital. They had a positive impact upon people's lives, upon many of them. But while they were there, a horrible hailstorm visited the region, ruined the crops of many of the people who were working on those fields. And a witch doctor operating in the area, he claimed, this hailstorm, that's God's punishment upon us. Because of these evil people, Joan and Terry. So the people that Joan and Terry had helped turned on them, stole their medical equipment, threw it away, knocked down the house that the two of them had been living in. Joan and Terry, understandably, are afraid for their lives, didn't know what they would do, were a little unsure of whether they'd be able to get back home, and they wondered to themselves, why would people do this? We were trying to help them. We were only trying to improve their lives, and we thought we were having an impact for good out here. And we can so easily do the same. Because once we start disliking someone, what do we do? We'll try to find faults, and we'll try to dismantle their character, and we'll question all of their abilities and actions. And we'll be focusing on their faults, real or imagined. And of course, we all have faults that are not imagined, but are very real. But here's the difference that love makes. Love is a harbor of trust for those who are being doubted by everybody else. And as soon as somebody wants to get things right again, love is quick to reach out the arm, restore the fallen brother or sister. Galatians 6 and verse 1. But what happens, and here's an objection. This all sounds very good and very plausible, but what happens if you take this cloak 
of love and you throw it over over another brother or sister's sin, you believe they're going to get straightened out and you believe they're going to come back to the Lord, but they don't come. What do you do when you find your faith beginning to fade because you thought they'd come back? I've seen it so often, a parent with a wayward child. I thought they'd come back to the Lord. They seem so close, but it's been 15 years. It's been 20 years. Or the Christian wife with a non-Christian husband who says, I thought he would become a Christian, but I just don't know anymore. I don't know now whether he will ever believe. What does love do then? Love hopeth all things. As well as believeth all things, love hopeth all things. When Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 13 and 7 that love believes and hopes all things, it doesn't mean that they're gullible. doesn't mean that we're standing for nothing and falling for everything. It does mean true love refuses to lose hope and will not give up on people. What about the story, familiar story of the prodigal son? One of those two sons wanted his inheritance before the father died. Reluctantly, the father gave him his share of the inheritance. The boy left home, squandered everything in loose and reckless living. Eventually, ended up virtually homeless, forced to eat the food of pigs. Finally, broken, humiliated, that boy decides, I need to go home. It's the only place where I've ever known love. And what does he find? In Luke 15, 20, he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. How did the father see the son who was yet a long way off because he was always looking out the window for him? Can you imagine what it was like for that young man to see his father rushing out to meet him with the open arms of love rather than the clenched fists of anger. This kind of love changes a person. This is the kind of love God has for each of us, and this is the kind of love he wants us to have for each other. Love hopeth all things. John Ortberg wrote, Hope is the fuel that the human heart runs on, a car crash or a diving accident can paralyze a body, but the death of hope paralyzes the spirit. Hope is what prompts a young man and a young woman to stand before a preacher and promise, I do, even though they have no guarantees. Hope is what fuels that same couple many years later after broken promises and broken hearts to give their promise another try. Hope is why human beings keep bringing children into this fallen world. Hope is why there are hospitals and universities. Hope is why there are therapists and consultants. No composer would agonize over composing a piece without the hope that some glimmer of beauty will arise out of their struggle sometime. No parents would agonize over a child without the hope that their child might live a better and a nobler and a happier life. When he was an old man, the master painter Henri Matisse was crippled by arthritis. Wrapping his fingers around a brush was a painful experience, but painting, though it was agony, he didn't leave. 
kept at it. Somebody asked him, why, Henri, do you keep painting? And he answered, the pain goes away. The beauty endures. That's hope. Hope sees the beauty that can come in another person. It detects the treasure that the world has written off, denied, discarded. It's like those who go along to an auction and buy what everybody else has passed over. It's an ugly piece of furniture. But they buy it, and they're happy with the purchase because they have seen that with a little bit of love, a bit of elbow grease, there's a beautiful piece of furniture beneath all those layers, ugly layers, of incongruous finish and paint. That kind of love sees what most others overlook. And speaking about this hope, we're thinking about the object of hope. Hope brings us, always has to, as a Christian, brings us to this point. Genesis 18, the verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's not that we can do it, that we can pull a trick or two and achieve something. It's only the Lord who will ever do it. His power fuels our hope. So God's promise is this. At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And with a promise from such a great God in our hand, at our disposal, we can tap into the optimism of hope. You see, love is hopelessly optimistic. It never stops hoping. Love declares God is still God, and He can do it. So that's what I am hoping in. Love refuses to take failure as final. God didn't accept that from Israel. Christ didn't accept that from Peter. Paul wouldn't accept that from the Corinthians. Many a loving wife has held on to a husband with nothing but a ray of hope by which to hold. Many a loving parent has held on to a wayward child. Many a loving friend has held on to a fallen brother, and they're just holding on to the frayed strands at that stage of hope. The object, the optimism, the obstacle of hope. When all our faith becomes clouded over, when days, weeks, months, years have passed, and hope is still believing all things, and hope is still, our faith, love is still hoping all things, it's still believing all things, but our faith is clouding over, what do we do? We still have to hold on to the rope of hope. John MacArthur told the story of a dog in a large city airport, patiently waiting for his master to come back. His master got onto a plane and left the dog there. Five years later, now he was given food and water each day by people at the airport, but the dog waited in the same spot, hoping his master would someday return. Now if the attachment of a dog for his master can generate that kind of faithful hope, and it did certainly hope, will be built up in us 
If we are exercising the kind of love that we are reading about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if we really love, hope will be produced. When faith gets clogged up, when it gets fogged out, love still hangs on to hope. When doubt and despair come in like ravens stealing away our faith, love still has to hope. But somebody says, and this is reality. I'm hearing you. I know what you're saying. But here's where we are. If you, 1 Corinthians 13 and 7, if you bear all things, if you believe all things, if you hope all things, but what's happening is the line is still going further and further and further away from you, and the prospects are becoming dimmer so that you are losing hope. Then what do you do? Well, the answer comes in the final clause. In 1 Corinthians 13 and 7, love endureth all things, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's why I said these terms are associated and ascending. The Greek term translated endureth in 1 Corinthians 13 and 7 is actually a military word. And what it relates to is you being put into the hottest part of the battle. You're on a way bringing up supplies from the back of the field. You're there to be shot at. You're there feeling the heat of that struggle. And so the emphasis here is not on handling little minor annoyances, like dealing with a pebble in your shoe. This is referring to love that stands against incredible opposition, and still, with all of that, still keeps on loving. Examples, biblical ones, let's have Stephen. In Acts 7 and 60, he's lying on the ground. His life is being crushed out of him with the repeated throwing of stones against his freedom. And he cries, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Would you or I be thinking, talking like he did? He wanted to throw a mantle over the sins of his own people. He believed and he hoped. And he preached with the belief that some would listen, and he hoped that someday some of them would come to Christ. And when he ran out of faith and hope, all he had left was endurance, and he did endure because he loved them. How far are we prepared to go? Another biblical example, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that cross, he threw a mantle over the sin of those, even those who crucified him, believed some of them would believe, hoped that he would come to him, endured to the end, though they spat upon him, and he cries, Father, forgive them. Luke 23, 34, love never dies. That's the point. It never fails. And even when your love for that wayward child goes on year after year, and all you're getting back is ingratitude and hatred and bitterness and rejection. You never stop loving. You endure. Love hangs in there. 
It's easy to despair in life. We feel it's just better to give up, you know, and go the way of the world. We feel the more money we make, the more expenses appear, the more tests the doctor orders, the more problems he discovers. The harder we work, the more work there is that seems that needs to be done. The more we give to others, the more they seem to expect. The story's told about a New York policeman who came upon a young man standing on a bridge over the Hudson River. What are you doing up there? inquired the policeman. I'm going to jump and end my life. It's so pointless and miserable. And the policeman talked the young man into rethinking his position. Let's take 20 minutes, said the policeman. You take 10 to explain why you think your life is so empty. And I'll take 10 to give you reason for hope. And so they talked, policeman and would-be jumper, for 20 minutes. And then both of them jumped off the bridge. That's where our world is going. That's what happens when one is helping the other, because they're both without hope. And outside of Christ... You don't have the hope you need. And you won't have the love you require. Love sees beyond despair. It has confidence in God. It knows, as we have read in our Bible reading today, that God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That kind of love, and only that kind, does not give up on people. It refuses to be discouraged. It's willing to pay whatever price is necessary. Maybe you've seen this kind of love in action. In the couple who remain committed, even when all their friends tell them, get out of there. In the cancer patient who continues to give to their family and looks for ways to serve God, even though they are physically wiped out. In the parent who continues to reach out to their child, even though they do not agree and cannot agree in the direction their child is headed. In the student who's been left out of the team for unjust reasons but continues to cheer on those teammates in the person who continues to work hard, even though others they know are taking advantage of them. These people keep loving, keep praying, keep believing that love will win out in the end. And when that kind of enduring love gets through to another person, it's a wonderful thing. As we close, may I remind you of some key truths. Let's take these with us. God is bigger than any crisis. His strength is sufficient for all our need. He can change any heart. The king's heart is in his hand. He turns it whatever way he wants. Proverbs 21 and 1, God can use any circumstance for his glory. He's not limited in any way. And even though you may be ready to give up, God will never give up on you. He will continue to pursue you, to love you, to see past where you are, to what you're going to become by His grace.
And if we take this same passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the verse 4 to 7, that we have spent a lot of time on, and we look at these 15 features in the profile of love, and if we take the word charity every time it occurs and replace it with God, you'll see the wonderful nature of God's love described. Because this is God's love. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of our wrongs. He doesn't delight in evil, but does rejoice in the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always, thank God, He always perseveres. He endures. This kind of love, that's what God is calling us to. It's a, we notice right at the beginning, agape. It's a supernatural love. It's a love He models. It's why we read from Ephesians 3 and the verse 17 to 19 stand out there, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Tell me, do you know this love personally? Have you felt it reach your heart? You may be sitting here today or tuned in over the internet, and you're well aware of your failures and your hurts and your sins and your scars. And maybe somebody out there, maybe a lot of people think your life is just okay. It's maybe even great, but you know the truth. Those hidden struggles, maybe they're not so hidden struggles, cause you to think there's not a lot to salvage out of my life. God loves you. You may feel everybody else has given up. Maybe they have. God has not. His arms are opened, and He's calling, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's promising you, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out that sinful past He can deal with by His sacrifice of blood and new life in Christ. When you repent and receive Him, will begin. Stop replaying. The old sins and mistakes of the past. And do what the prodigal did, head towards home. Father is waiting. Christ paid the debt. New life awaits in him. And in Christ alone, you'll find what real love is all about. Lord, I believe your promise. I turn from my sin and from my love of sin. I'll put my trust not in my own work, but in the work of Christ my Savior. Save me by thy grace. And there are people here today who can say, well, I'm a testimony to that. I can tell you about God's transforming love in my life. Let's not stop until the love he has sent to us overflows into the lives of others. And when that happens, God's love has power to change the world, and He can do it through us, one life at a time.